and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Saren Kaster, and uh, I'm I'm as excited for today's show as everyone else is, uh, partially due to the fact uh, that I have no idea what's on it except I'm doing an interview. Yes. So I'm, <laughs> I'm experiencing this show. Uh, listeners will know that I'm in school, and uh, boy, I, I, I actually kind of like enjoying the show. It's like I get to be on the show and I get to enjoy the show at the same time. This it's is kind it's of fun. a two for one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you do know that, that we, we do have an interview in the second section. Oh, no, I do. I, I'm all over the interview. <laughs> I just have nothing else I know. Right. So uh, tell me things I don't know. Yeah. Let's get, let's get going. Um, so so we're, what we're going to do here is we're going to have uh, a couple, we're, we're, what's a really jam-packed first section. So we're going to run through a bunch of news, starting with Ontario, then going into biodiversity, uh, and then, then, some, then some wilderness conversation briefly, and then fracking. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very large uh, set of news heavy mm-hmm. in the first section. Then, of course, we do have our, our interview with, uh, with a wonderful documentarian. Anne Shin, Anne director Shin. of a superfood documentary. Yes, uh, which, which I believe just uh, was, came out during uh, the Planet in Focus uh, uh, film festival. Mm. So that, that's great. And then at the end, we're talking about, we're, we're going deep back into the tar sands. Uh, not, not pipeline related exactly this time. Although there's a bit of a there's a bit of a pipeline connection, um, but more so just about uh, about where they're at and a whole bunch of information that makes you think maybe not the greatest place to invest right now. Just throwing that out there. Well, at least our commitment to say the word pipeline at least forty times a show is not put at risk. Yes, exactly. Thank you for, thanks for that save stuff. Yeah, I got at least once. Uh, but uh, but let's start with Ontario, Dave. What do we got? So uh, <clears throat> thank you, Stefan. Uh, we have one week left until the sixteenth of November to submit our concerns and suggestions to the Ontario government on its new climate change plan. The webpage is www.ontario.ca slash forum slash tell us your ideas climate change. We will post the link to our website tonight, but it can also be found uh, quite easily through the Google. And if you are in Toronto, the group Climate Fast is holding a forum and training session asking the question, what needs to be in a climate plan for Ontario? The event will be held on Wednesday, November the 14th at Friends House at 60 Lowther Avenue near Bedford and Bloor. The event runs from 6.30 to 9.30 in the evening and will include Nancy Pilardi of the Environmental Commissioner's Office, Keith Stewart of Greenpeace, and Sarah Buchanan of Environmental Defense. For complete information, go to climatefast.ca and see the upcoming event. Did you want to comment on that, Stefan, before I moved on to the other? Let's do both. Okay. Also, Environmental Defense is reporting that, quote, the Ontario government has proposed to extend the moratorium on new water bottling permits for another year. This would mean no new or expanded permits to take water for bottling would be allowed until at least January 2020, end quote. The moratorium was put in place two years ago after public outcry to give enough time for the provincial government to complete a scientific review, which is yet uh, incomplete. The new proposal allows for the review to continue regarding the impact of private water extraction on the groundwater resources in Ontario. The government is holding a poll to gauge public support for the measure. If you would like to take this yes or no poll, Google bottled water moratorium survey or environmental registry bottled water survey. We will post the link on our website page as well, which is ero.ontario.ca slash notice slash 013-3974. I'm sure we all got that one. Yeah. No, just um, quickly, I'm sure they, because like when you're doing a web uh, a domain title, you need to keep it kind of short, but to like really a more accurate title would be like, do you want uh, internet multinational companies to uh, take our natural uh, resources at pennies on the dollar and make just 
gobs of cash <laughs> elsewhere uh, while really giving nothing back to Canadians while also taking their natural resources. Dot com. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> I, it seems like a dot org. To yeah. be honest, it feels like well, that was me. the working title, but then it got workshop. You know what happens in a workshop? Thing. It <laughs> oh, just right. got workshop down and then right. it was like, you know, whatever. <laughs> now just ERO done to you. Yes, I will. I'll tweet those both out. Um, and as a quick, uh, as a quick to sort of insiders, uh, insiders ball game kind of thought here um, about, I, I feel like it's, it's valuable sort of give an insight into some of the thinking going on within sort of activist circles working on, on these issues, um, which is that there's a, there's this often call to, to, for, for the engagement with public is actually kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and especially when it comes to the climate plan like this, um, in that there's, please, if you do feel committed, go out in, in, in sign that, or we'll, we'll post We'll tweet the link as well. And so you can, so you can sign the, so you can submit your opinions on this thing. Um, but there's also an interesting question here, uh, about legitimizing the process that the Ontario government is going through, uh, right now to scrap the cap and trade. You know, are we giving them too many people? They can say, like, oh, look, we consulted 2,000 people on this. Even if all 2,000 said, no, don't do this, leave cap and trade, they're still giving them a, a look, we engaged the public and they had opinions and we listened to it kind of thing. Um, and so there's an interesting kind of question about when there's governments that you truly believe are acting in bad faith. Uh, what does that mean for engaging them in this kind of sort of direct way that they would like to be engaged? Does the engagement merely legitimize their uh, decision to not act? Exactly. Yeah. And so there's an interesting question there, and it's an interesting conversation. But but uh, any type of work climate organizing is always benefit. So please do hang out with Climate Fast because they are amazing folks. Uh, but let's keep moving because we had a lot of stories. Biodiversity. So yes, uh, the United Nations biodiversity chief Christiana Pasca Palmer is warning that the loss of biological diversity could be as dire as climate change and must be addressed in the next two years. It has long been recognized that we are currently undergoing the biggest species die-off in 65 million years, which two international agreements, one in 2002 and another in 2010, have not been able to stop. The two-week UN Biodiversity Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, will commence in just three days and run until November 29th, including over 190 countries. The website for the conference states that the aim of the event is, quote, to step up efforts to halt the biodiversity loss and protect the ecosystems that support food and water security and health for billions of people. Jonathan Watts writes for The Guardian, quote, ahead of a key international conference to discuss the collapse of ecosystems, Christiana Pasca Palmer said that people in all countries need to put pressure on their governments to draw up ambitious global targets by 2020 to protect the insects, birds, plants, and mammals that are vital for global food production, clean water, and carbon sequestration. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity is the international intergovernmental body charged with protecting our global ecosystems. It is depending on the next two weeks to start a process of reframing the international management of ecosystems, ideally leading to a landmark agreement at the following conference in Beijing in 2020. The U.S. and the Vatican are the only U.N. states that do not participate in such conferences, and world leaders don't typically attend the talks as they are not high on the political agenda. Past efforts have led to some improvements in species recovery in Asia and Africa, forest cover in Asia and marine protections, but forests have declined faster in other regions, and growing human population and climate change will accelerate biodiversity loss in the coming decades. Africa is currently on track to lose half of its birds and mammals by 2050, and Asia's fisheries will collapse by the same time. As we now, as, and as we know, 
the ecosystems that are those the ecosystems are those very systems that support life on this planet the death of which will lead to destructive vicious cycles on a planet-wide scale the climate change and biodiversity bodies at the UN, however, are bringing their scientists and policy advisors together for the first time, having held a first informal joint meeting in October and found the two efforts go hand in hand, and biodiversity loss will be on the agenda at the next G7 summit meeting held in France. Christiana Pasca Palmer stated, quote, Things are moving. There is a lot of goodwill. We should be aware of the dangers but not paralyzed by inaction. It's still in our hands but the window for action is narrowing. We need higher levels of political and citizen will to support nature. Yeah. So the, so the, it's an interesting thing here about, um, about, about this should like climate change is, is a, is obviously a severe problem, but the way climate change will manifest and ultimately sort of really impact humans is, is sort of in these other ways, you know, like, like in, in that, it, climate change will will warm oceans, which will lead to this other thing. Like obviously, everyone so always about climate change being sort of a risk factor multiplier, uh, rather than itself being a thing. Like, we're just, it, like it is, we will. There are many other ways that humanity will have serious, serious problems, uh, like or really apocalypse scenarios. If I'm being perfectly honest, um, before you'd get the world just being too hot to survive. You know, the, the the jet yeah. streams changing, or the or the or or different uh, different currents in the ocean currents, or biodiversity loss is much more likely to be the sort of ways that actually cause the, the way humans will experience the really negative sudden effects of climate change, and 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 what's interesting about biodiversity loss really is that it is. It's 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 very wide ranging. We had an article. We had a story we covered. I think a year or two ago now, uh, about insects in Europe. And just how the absolute collapse of insects in Europe was was staggering. I think they had lost like half of the insects' mass uh, of uh, over over a short time period, and and that is often mis misseen within this concept of biodiversity loss. Insects are sort of the invisible part of biodiversity loss, um, and and so there's there's a lot of what's good is there's a lot of goodwill in part because there it's biodiversity loss doesn't have exactly the same kind of entrenched uh, systemic problems that fossil fuel use does you know there, there there should be ways to do this now i will say the industrial agriculture is is certainly a big big part of this and if you want to have a, a tie into a recent story uh the election of bolsonaro in in brazil is going to be a disaster for biodiversity loss uh because of just how important the um the the Amazon the Amazon rainforest are for biodiversity exactly, um, and so there's and so there are certainly some uphill battles, but like it should be something that we'd be able to get somewhere with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so and so I'm I'm going to be very 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 cautiously optimistic on this one, but even short bit in wilderness. Just attack, yeah, just attack yeah. onto that uh, issue. A new wilderness map, Stefan, is showing that seventy percent of the last untouched areas on the globe reside in only uh, five countries, namely Canada. Russia, Australia, Brazil, and the U.S. Although I think most of that is in Alaska for the U.S. The researchers who created the map claim that protection of these areas can be done, quote, only if it is recognized within international policy frameworks. Lead author James Watson said, quote, it's achievable to have a target of 100%. All nations need to do is stop industry from going into those places. Yeah, which Bolsonaro has very, very clearly made made it apparent that that is not something that at least Brazil will be doing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to roughly make a guess that I would not be surprised if Russia also expect, expanded. Um, and of course, you're talking about things like the tech mine here in uh, in. Uh, 
in in Canada, which is again still expanding the into into more that's true into more untouched area, or that's at least true. less touched area. Maybe uh, it'd be hard to you'd have to find out exactly how this sort of understood exactly, but worth mm-hmm. a shot. You can look at the map. I have a question. Yes. Uh, so if uh, if we need to uh, if we need if we need more political will, and people have to get political courage and all the great things that that Dave was just saying, um, and these companies are profitable. I'm just a little bit confused why we need political will if if there's no conflict between the environment and the economy. <laughs> I'm just a little confused. Like if it was profitable to not destroy the rainforest, right? Then why do we need political will? I'm just I'm hope I don't know. Can you answer that? It's uh, yeah exactly. Well the well there's well, there's there's the back and forth between whose profits do you care about, right? Uh, well, and, or well or or even deeper question, uh, what what. How is profits and livelihood separated from the people who are currently living on this quote-unquote untouched land? We have to do something about this urgent problem of climate change. Great, let's stop doing oil. No, 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 that'll be bad for the economy. Let's do something that's not bad for the economy that will stop climate change. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So companies are going to do that because they have a profit incentive, right? (laughs) Oh, wait, they're not doing it. Huh. Weird. Yeah. The and, and what should be mentioned, which should be which should be highlighted as well, uh, which is that I would be very interested to understand in Brazil especially uh, what what these quote unquote uh, wilderness maps are in relation to uh, into the indigenous uh, peoples who have lived there uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Like I presume they have not actually forced people I would hope they've not forced people out of these lands I presume they've decided that indigenous peoples almost still count as being a part of the wilderness yet yet while still forcing this duality from for everyone else untouched by heavy industry activity I believe was uh, the- uh, okay wow okay that's a that's a lower bar than I thought they were setting <laughs> uh, somewhat depressing but we do have one speaking of uh, heavy industry uh, yes. great segue to the last of this conversation yeah so as we mentioned two weeks ago uh, fracking has returned to the UK as protests and court challenges have not managed to prevent its return after a seven-year hiatus. And yet, even as it has only just begun, the company Quadrilla has had to stop fracking twice in four days in the county of Lancashire on the 26th and 29th of October due to earthquakes occurring during drilling that went beyond the 0.5, degree magn- uh, the 0.5 magnitude threshold that was implemented in 2011, after the same company caused earthquakes in the same area. Quadrilla's chief executive told reporters for The Guardian that the threshold should be eased, but the energy minister has publicly rejected that controversial idea. Peter Stiles, a geologist who helped deter- determine the threshold, said, quote, They don't like it because it costs them money when they stop, but that's not part of this game. It's not the time to raise it. Let's carry it out under these rules, observe it, and then revisit it when we have the data. But Brian Bapti, a seismologist who helped, who also helped determine the threshold, opined that it may be so low that the fracking operations are led to artificially fail economically, even if they would not have created appreciable damage. In conversation with The Guardian's Stuart Hazeldean, professor of geology at the University of Edinburgh, said of the threshold, quote, In terms of perception, it's a great number. In terms of science, it's not particularly rational. In terms of trying to enable the drilling to occur, it's too stringent. In British Columbia and Alberta, the threshold magnitude for halting fracking operations is 4, compared with the UK threshold, which is just 0.5. Adam Vaughn for The Guardian writes, quote, Increasingly, it looks like the UK government's fracking aspirations could be dashed by its own rules. 
Yeah. The and I just want to. There's an important context to understand about how uh, about how earthquakes are uh, are actually um, measured, uh, which is that these are not these are orders of magnitude, not uh, not just percentages. Mm. So so something that is so so, so a, something that is a point five um, uh, on a, on a, on a scale is 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 not just eight like it's not eight times more. It is. It is. It's the number itself multiplied. It's 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 square root by a factor. Squared. By a factor factors. of eight. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is. It is much, 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 much like that is that is a huge difference between British Columbia and Alberta and mm-hmm. uh, and in the UK. That's like an absolutely fundamentally like different experience. Um, and and it, it, and it's like I would be curious to know sort of where the um, where this idea of like. How each side is having this conversation about point five of a apparently of a, the zero point five um, is a kind of earthquake that would also occur when um, doing other kinds of infrastructure activity. Oh wow! So even like so like drilling a big hole for uh, yeah, building for a, a highway and stuff. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, it was it was interesting, right? Like this is a the fracking has fracking has there are many reasons why fracking should be concerning. Um, what's interesting is people do hold on to the. They, people really hold on to this 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 part of creating earthquakes when really the fact that it you'd be I would argue more concerned about the about the water supply and the in the fact that that fracking has 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 been shown to to pollute water supplies in the area. Um, to my knowledge, no one has yet been hurt by a by a a earthquake caused by a fracking thing, but many people have had problems with their taps lighting on fire, um, which of course was the. The, the famous video that came out uh, in Pennsylvania years ago. Hmm. Um, well, in the UK, their tables, their tables and houses wobble. In the United States, their water catches fire. <laughs> they have their different issues. Right. Yes. Um, and, and and it should be important that that uh, it's interesting. I find it always interesting where people's concerns exist and don't exist. You know, I, I feel like the 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 earthquake part of this is like, I'm feeling it right now. So it must be bad. Whereas the water pollution part of it is like sort of out of sight, out of mind a little bit, uh, unless you do have something where you literally can let your, 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 your water on fire, which is, again, sort of changes the, the topic, but we are hitting our exactly 1120. And for, I feel like we should at least atta- aim to be on time at least once in a while on this show. Once in a while. Oh, yeah. yeah. If nothing else to keep people on their toes. Well, exactly. Yeah. So uh, let's throw it over to, uh, to Megan, our tech uh, for the music break. All right, we are back. Uh, you are listening to The Green Majority if you're just tuning in to us here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Zaren Kaster, and we're now going into the interview uh, portion of our show. I believe we have on the phone Anne Shin. Are you with us? Hi, how are you? Hi there. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You are, uh, well, uh, we're speaking to you today as a filmmaker, but after I've read through your bio, you're also uh, quite a prolific uh, writer and artist and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, uh, So I'm going to go with prolific creator then. As your okay, um, so and we have a uh, very proud history of interviewing documentary filmmakers on the show uh, because it is one of my favorite things to do, and the reason for that is because I think that documentary filmmakers have a really incredible uh, view of an issue because they were interested but didn't know a ton, and then mm-hmm. went and sort of got a crash course in that subject. And I think that's a really unique uh, uh, experience uh, to go from sort of so little to such such depth. So we're speaking to you today about your most recent documentary. 
documentary. You have had several previous award-winning ones. I wish we wish you the best of luck uh, with your future projects. But the one we're talking about today is called the Superfood Chain. It's going to be on uh, TVO, or sorry, was on TVO, uh, mm-hmm. and it's following the chain of so-called uh, superfoods. And I'm wondering if before we go any further, there's a number of aspects I want to ask you about. Just tell the audience uh, what we mean by a superfood. So it's a great question. I mean, superfood is a term that's really a marketing term. It's meant to um, refer to foods that are high in nutritious elements and vitamins and minerals are what people see as antioxidants. Um, so that, you know, some people will go so far as saying to say that they help ward off certain kinds of diseases and things, or they have, you know, extra beneficial properties. So that's what it's, that's what superfoods are. So there was no, there's no, and there hasn't been uh, any sort of uh, technical definition of that in any way. It's literally just there's no term. like there's no regulatory body saying this right. is a superfood and that isn't. But <laughs> yeah. it's, for example, it's things like acai or quinoa, mm-hmm. or people talk about kale even more locally, or salmon that has high it's high in omega three oils, and you know these are some things that are kind of deemed as superfoods. Yeah, so it's uh, the people are going to be. Uh, whether I'm sure people are familiar with that term. If they're not, they're definitely familiar with some of those products. Uh, as you say, they're heavily marketed. They have been for a number of years. Uh, I've been. I don't. Uh, I don't know if my memory serves, but I, I've been hearing that word for you know going on three quarters of a decade or so, uh, maybe mm-hmm. ten years approximately. It's been around, and it always seemed super marketing to me. But I know that it was really effective campaign just like around that sort of eight to ten years ago. Um, it really was all the rage. It was very, mm-hmm. very effective marketing campaign. Yeah. And a lot of these yeah. uh, crops really blew up. So let's move to that sort of part of the story. This was a very successful uh, marketing campaign. All the rage are these superfoods, as you said, uh, quinoa, acai berries, uh, all those types of things. Uh, there were small farmers, though, that were making these things mm-hmm. before the, the entire global economy sort of shifted underneath their feet. Uh, maybe yeah. we can start the story part there. Yeah. You know, I'm a mom with two kids, and I I like to feed my kids healthy foods. And I'm I was a bit of a sucker for the latest greatest superfood that was hitting the health food store shelf. So I I, was, I found myself buying these packages and wondering, you know, where is it really from, and and how does it affect the farmers or fishermen across the world who who produce these things? And so my kids and I we went on a journey to find that out, and. Um, in terms of, for instance, a crop like quinoa, like quinoa, a lot of people have heard of it a lot, maybe eating it now, but it was originally an ancient grain that a lot of um, Bolivians and Peruvians and South Americans relied on for centuries. And then when North American market heard about it and thought, oh, wow, this is high protein, it's got these great enzymes and minerals, and it's a superfood, and it's better to eat than rice or pasta. So the demand for quinoa went up completely. It was off the charts. And so it was great for a short time period for Bolivian and Peruvian quinoa farmers because suddenly they were getting lots of money for their crops. But ironically, it was too expensive. The grain became too expensive for local Bolivians to eat. So they were having like pasta. <laughs> it was just Selling ironic. the quinoa to buy pasta that was yeah. made in China. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, and then um, and then what happened was as as a, as the whole industry matured and the demand for quinoa remained high, bigger farms, multinational farms in the United States, in Canada, Spain, and China started growing quinoa, 
And then the demand for South American quinoa went down. So then the livelihood for Bolivian farmers was endangered, and they started to grow other crops that were more popular locally, like different kinds of heirloom potatoes, because they couldn't sell their quinoa for a profitable price at the market anymore. Mm-hmm. And that has so, to do with scales. That has to do with like mega farms and driving the price down yeah. and all that sort of stuff, right? So, yeah. 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 But I just became aware that it, it doesn't really help for sustainable farming, like, you know, to have some a food hyped up to be a superfood and that, you know, and so that's what the film explores. How can we as consumers here in Toronto or in Canada just try to be a bit more conscious and help help promote sustainable farming for for farmers around the world? Now, uh, and please forgive me, I, I try not to ask questions if I don't think the person, I, if I'm not sure the person has the answer. I don't know if you'll know the answer to this. I apologize. But I'm curious if you know, just because b- briefly before we move on uh, to another superfood. Um, so around that time when when all this stuff got marketed, like what I'm curious about, like, was it a bunch of big companies that um, like actually tested it and found and actually did that research and went, wow, it turns out this is really healthy. We should market it as healthy. Or do you like, do you know the story about how that came about? Cause it seemed it it really did explode out of nowhere. And then all the, these terms we were like, do you have any idea where that actually came from, from like the marketing side, from these big corporations that were putting this campaign out? Like, how did that happen? Well, do you know? There are, I wouldn't say that there was like a big corporation that you could pinpoint as the perpetrator. Well, it wasn't it, necessarily craft. You know, <laughs> no, it wasn't craft. Definitely not. But it's people, it was, it, it, there's a whole industry of, you know, nutritionists and, and dieters who, who look for, you know, protein rich or, or good foods that are low in fats and such. Mm. And they'll, they'll, they'll often be touting like uh, a certain new food as like, you should try this. It's great for, for X, Y, or Z. But that gets that 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 research and that news and that kind of industry gets amplified when celebrities like Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. or Gwyneth Paltrow talk about it. And Oprah Winfrey first talked about quinoa. And lots of people twigged to it. She also talked about acai, acai berries, and that became hugely popular too. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone like Gwyneth Paltrow talked, you know, talked about those kinds of foods as well as teff, which is a lesser known. Um, so-called superfood out of Ethiopia, which has more—it's a grain that has more more iron and um, minerals than quinoa does. I want to—I um, want to ask you about more of the. Um uh, specific um, superfoods having to do. So I know the with when it comes to the uh, quinoa, the with um, you know with uh, Bolivia uh, where that started, and we, we talked a little bit about the impact there. Can we talk about some of the uh, other superfoods and some of the other uh, locations? Maybe compare and contrast because I know the uh, the experience in Bolivia was as you uh, as you sort of say they've been growing the quinoa for thousands of years. All of a sudden, it's popular. Is this this the same story that gets sort of replicated mm-hmm. with other products throughout, or, or yeah. does it does it change depending on what we're talking about? It, it changes depending on how the how the government um, kind of try to maintain their food sovereignty. That is the right for their own people to grow and profit from or eat their own national foods or that that region's foods. So, um, if we take a look at salmon, for instance, um, salmon. It's been known for a while that it has high omega three oils, and it's been popular for that reason. And then more recently, as more news has come out about the problems with farmed salmon and how to, you know, what you should avoid among certain kinds of farmed salmon, wild-caught salmon has become very, very 
popular, and that's put a pressure on the fishery in Haida Gwaii, which is off the west coast of BC. And so in Haida Gwaii, it's, it's a beautiful area, and the Haida Nation is a very strong, um, well-governed uh, Aboriginal nation. And they manage the salmon fishery according to traditional uh, approaches, where they try to keep it sustainable fishing so that there's always more fish the following year. But there's also a commercial fishery that's competing, as well as now a sports fishery, which has been growing in demand, like people coming to catch huge fish and take them back home in their, you know, styrofoam coolers back to wherever they came from. So you've got, you know, three fisheries competing for the same fish and the demand for wild-caught salmon is, has been increasing the, the, the competition. So that's an example of, um, well, the Department of Fishery in BC has been trying to manage it so that the Haida fishery will, you know, help sustain that, that population as well as manage down the commercial and um, sports fishery allocation. But they can't fight the offshore fishing done by, um, you know, fisher fishing companies from other countries that will be just outside the Canadian shore mm-hmm. um, shorelines and, and catching from the same fishing pool. Yeah, well, they're the the fish are outside Canada, so they're not Canadian fish. Um, <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> thank you for knowing that was a joke. Um, exactly. Uh, so, I I want to ask you. I know another thing that you looked at quite extensively was the actual nutritional part of it, and I'd, I'd like to spend the yeah. a, a good chunk of our remaining time on that quickly yeah. before we move off. Though, I just want to. I, I feel like you were saying something, and I want to give you an opportunity to to drive it home or deny it. Yeah. Maybe I misinterpreted you, uh, yeah. but it seems like like the real problem here is not. We'll, we'll talk about the nutrition value in one second. Uh, but it seems like the real issue here where there's an issue is largely not around a particular superfood or or even necessarily the label label superfood, although it, it's kind of meaningless, um, Is but it's these boom and bust cycles of, mm-hmm. of crops that's the problem. Can you confirm or deny that and expand on that if possible? And then we'll talk about nutrition. Sure. I, I mean, I think that it, it's about when there's a global demand suddenly brought to an ancient small crop, right? Whether it's pests, or acai that's great that's cultivated in Brazil often in the rainforest areas or if it it could be pests from Ethiopia and so when there's suddenly a global demand brought to this small crop it creates issues of sustainability it dis- disrupts like the farming and the farmers livelihoods and the, and the practices and so you know that that's a concern because it could lead to boom and bust or it could lead to, you know, um, I guess there's piracy, there's seed piracy too, where, um, for instance, um, seeds from maca, which is known to be very beneficial for health, and some people, particularly in China, they see it as an aphrodisiac. (laughs) So the demand for, you know, Peruvian maca is through the roof, and there have been people smuggling seeds out of Peruvian, uh, out of Peru. So there are all these kinds of issues that can arise because something's marketed as a superfood or as this powerful food. And I think that our, our approach as consumers is we can try to really be aware of our role in that and be really be mindful of knowing where the food is coming from. Yeah. So if we can buy foods that are fair trade or direct trade, then it's, it's probably it's going to be benefiting the farmers on the other end. And that's something that I, I, I really, you know, it's something that really got driven home for me as I traveled to Bolivia in Ethiopia and 
went to Haida Gwaii in the Philippines and met with different farmers and found how fair trade organizations are really actually helping them in, in so many ways, not just by getting them the proper money, but lobbying for land rights or getting them the machinery to farm their, their goods in a, or their, prop, their crops in a way that they couldn't afford to without that help. I can't imagine what it would be like to have my, you know, entire country and way of life and community overhauled by something becoming or falling out of fashion yeah. uh, thousands yeah. of miles away. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, Let so, alone weather, right? Yeah. Climate and weather. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we've, we've only got five or six minutes left, Anne, and I, I want to spend a couple of minutes to, uh, just talking about the nutrition, and then we'll, we'll make sure that the listeners have an opportunity to find out where they can see the film. It's beautifully mm-hmm. shot. Uh, we highly recommend Thank it. You. So we'll, we'll spend the last minute uh, promoing the film. But just for a minute, if you can run through maybe just off the top of your head uh, some of the f- superfoods, and then you looked into the nutritional value. So I guess my final official question is, how super are these superfoods? And we can maybe talk yeah. about a couple specifics. Right. Well, superfoods are quite good for you. They're, they're, they are packed with nutrients. For instance, you know, salmon does have more omega-3 oils than other fish, um, uh, than a lot of other fish, that is. And then, you know, quinoa is a grain that's higher in protein and minerals. If it's from the, if it's from the Bolivian highlands or the Peruvian highlands, that land produces quinoa that's very high in different kinds of minerals and enzymes. And it might not be the same for quinoa from other regions of the world. So there is certainly, like, they're, they're not lying when they when you look at the ingredients list of these various grains or foods. And, you know, you see that information. It's, it's true. But the, the thing is, you know, does it, are they so super that you should go out of your way to buy them as opposed to other locally or more sustainably sourced foods? That's the question that is, you know, is interesting to consider. Did you know that anchovies and sardines are also high in omega-3 oils? Mm-hmm. And they're a much more sustainable fish to eat. And if somebody called and... them superfood, maybe that people would buy them. Because I know, like, for my entire <laughs> life, like, that's been the joke thing that's not delicious. Yeah, like anchovies and spinach like, are the two things that yeah. get this. Uh, right, I rat. love spinach. It's great. And I, if someone called yeah. anchovies a superfood, I could probably yeah. be convinced. <laughs> well, I mean, kale suddenly became a huge thing when they called it a superfood, right? Before, you know, before five years ago, I didn't know what kale was. I never ate it. And now I have to admit, it's in most of my salads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, it's so chewy. Like, anyway, all right. Uh, yeah. well, that's our that's our vegan promotion for the minute. Um, there's lots yeah. more to learn on this topic, and it is yeah. much more impactful when you watch it as opposed to just listening to us. Uh, please mm-hmm. do go see Anne's film. So, Anne, uh, just take a minute here, please, to, um, uh, you were, uh, the film showed during yeah. the Planet in Focus Film Festival. It's now over. Yeah. How do people see it now? It's on, you can stream the short version online, the 52-minute version at tvo.org, so you can watch it there. But also, we are doing a bunch of screenings across Canada and the United States, and there are events that combine with chefs or, or farmers markets and the film screening. And if you'd like a screening in your community, you can get in touch with us through the superfoodchain.com website. That's great. And we'll make sure we have all those links posted on the website after the program as mm-hmm. well, so folks can check out greenmajority.ca. Uh, and Shin, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. And uh, it's a thank great you. film. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, great. Have a nice okay. day. Okay. Bye. All right. So, uh, Stefan, we're we're going back into our second break here, and then yeah. we we have more news. And Lauren's joining us. Is yes, that Lauren's going to join us, and we're going to talk about the the Alberta Energy Regulator. There was a, a whole a whole host of experiences that went on with the Alberta Energy Regulator recently. Actually, uh, the from a 
Uh, Maeve Maeve ended up the the, the head of it ended up quitting uh, or leaving. Although it's from the messaging sound like I was always planning on doing that, but also it happened right after a a complicated conversation that happened, which was sort of like, hey, guess what? Everything costs way more. Especially Leo Sands is 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 much more dangerous than you thought it would be. Uh, We're talking about that, and then also uh, why right now uh, the Sands are in a selling oil in a deep discount. So it's a lot of oil and a lot of Canada coming up in this in the all oil must go. Exactly. All right, Megan, our second and final music break, if you please. Lonely is as lonely does, but lonely is not what you All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country and internationally into space as well, bouncing off some satellites. Uh, And also uh, one just quick piece of housekeeping before we get to our final news section is that this is the last regular show before next week's super fabulous fall membership drive show. Yes. Where we will have still lots of news, possibly uh, some entertaining guests, if not entertainment. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to do something really silly and entertaining, and I haven't decided what that is yet. All right. <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, to be revealed. To be revealed, yes. Yeah. So that is a full membership drive uh, next week. But don't uh, don't say that you didn't get warned. This is your warning. So if you're listening to us on one of our partner community stations, uh, you probably will not hear next week's show. If you do, that would be great. Yes. Uh, if you're interested in supporting us, you can still go to CIT.FM. Uh, then there's slash, like donate. Do- slash donate today or something yeah. but there will be a big button if you like and if you're listening on the podcast you can do it right now you yes. can go to uh, ciut dot uh, fm and then probably donut hyphen today but it, there will be a button just go to ciut dot yeah. fm uh, and you can do that now that would be great because if you do it after the next week's podcast when we actually talk about it it will be technically after the drive and you miss out on prizes yes exactly very important you miss out on prizes and also like it would be great if we hit our go- our goal before we even before the show happens yeah it's a little, that- little known mm-hmm. fact um, I have a panic attack every fundraising drive because <laughs> I take my commitments very seriously and so you would actually like be like taking adding years to my life all right wow by <laughs> donating today now, that is a, that is a bold offer. Help me live longer, because if we get to the fundraising show and we don't have any pre-donations, <laughs> I'm going to be pretty nervous. All right. I'm going to be pretty upset. Just well, saying. Yeah. Well, not mad, just disappointed. Right. Well, in the interest, as using using Saren's long life uh, as a as an excellent pivot point, the other way to keep Saren alive for a long time is stopping climate change. Yes. Uh, Complimentary. Yes, say. exactly. Um, and so we've got a we uh, here in Canada. Uh, we have a thing called the oil sands. If you didn't know, uh, which is a large contributor to this. I also believe we have Lauren on the line. Is that correct? Yes, you do. Amazing. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for coming. As always, um, and so we're going to talk about uh, the. We're going to start. I believe we're going to begin not with the regulator, but with Canada selling oil at a steep discount. Is that correct? That's correct. The CBC is reporting that quote Western Canadian oil is selling at a steep discount, and analysis and analysts don't expect prices to bounce back soon. Fort McMurray has been increasing its output over 2018, but a price crash occurred in September because of backlogged product being stuck in Alberta, and now some refineries in the U.S. have closed for maintenance. Many major companies have decided to produce less oil, as prices are expected to take a while to recover even when the U.S. refineries reopen. In the meantime, more and more crude is being shipped by rail, which, uh, with numbers expected to nearly double by the end of the year. 
The price issue, as presented by the CBC, rests on the idea that demand for oil sands product is predictable and invariant, and increased shipping capacity therefore leads directly to higher prices, since the prices have ostensibly dropped due to a glut of supply that can't reach its potential markets. The low prices are currently expected to continue into 2020. Tom Whelan, president of the Petroleum Services Association of Canada, said, quote, The unprecedented wide heavy oil price differentials caused by our chronic pipeline constraints is nothing short of a crisis for Canada. Yeah, so this is, a, this is interesting. It's, it's, both, um, it's both proof of, uh, of, of, of a stated tactic of environmentalists that is working. Which is that the the stated tactic was well if you can't if if if, if the government refuses to actually you know put a limit on tar sands expansion uh, then we will put a limit on how much tar sands oil you can get out of the tar sands via this extended set of pipelines uh, fights that and then on. did I study uh, and then it and then it worked uh, <laughs> or is currently working at least uh, I will say that there's a another win on this front actually came I believe today or yesterday uh, with a federal judge in the states putting a, a hold on Trump's approval of the Keystone XL pipeline so that battle continues to this day um, but but yeah but clearly a, a, a but what's also funny is that it is clearly then being switched on the other side of of, of the conservative voices saying this is all the environmentalists' fault, um, which I have a thought on, but I want to go to Lauren before I, because I want to do a bit of research for half a second before I, before I comment. So Lauren, let's go to you on thoughts on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think it is sort of interesting that it's, that it's in a roundabout way, sort of a result of, of the pipeline fight that's been happening for so long now. Um, though, though in some ways it's kind of, it's the opposite of, of what everybody thought the, the outcome was going to be instead of sort of uh, limiting output and driving up prices because there isn't as much oil getting to market. It's, ha- it's having this opposite effect where prices have dropped so much that production isn't viable anymore because they just can't make any money off of this insanely expensive product. Um, so it's it's ultimately having the desired effect because the oil companies are suffering, but in like a weirdly roundabout way. I don't know. Um, maybe somebody can explain that to me who has a better understanding of macro environmental economics <laughs> because like my GPA in that class wasn't like super bomb. And, <laughs> well, the um, the uh, decreased supply only increases price if demand stays static, right? Yeah. So if you if you change one side of that equation, then it balances out to the other side. But mm-hmm. if your lack of supply, uh, in this case, like availability at market, not necessarily supply in is in it exists, but the market availability of it uh, goes down, and then that affects so, uh, demand then the price stays down. So that's what we're looking at. And so what that's saying is everyone else is seeing these things and responding to them rather than waiting for it to blow over. That's what we should read from this. Right, yeah. And and I guess the thing is, if nothing else, the big takeaway from this story is that it's super, it's just, this is a really great example and super indicative of the volatility of the product and, and just the market viability going forward, which sort of does obviously feed into feed into the next story a little bit where we're looking at increased liability and costs associated with the tar sands. But, yeah. but I think that's sort of, yeah, but the high-level takeaway such... from this is just the, how, how we can't predict what this market is going to look like. And therefore, to me at least, from an investor standpoint, it's it's too much of a gamble. I don't know. Yeah, and that's the thing. That, that's the biggest thing is that you, what you said was the investor standpoint, which is that this if the, if if the investors truly believe we will continue winning pipeline battles, they will stop investing in the tar, in the oil sense. Like they mm-hmm. they will they, their investment no longer makes sense. They are losing money at this at this current rate of sales. And I would point out that, dis- interestingly, um, while it is it is while 
all the all the prompts to the people fighting pipelines everywhere. Uh, the conservative talking point, strictly blaming this on the lack of pipelines, is not does not exactly bear out in reality because uh, you're seeing similar gluts of production in the states as well in different places. Um, and so it is not it is it is it is you cannot entirely blame this. While there is certainly an impact caused by these pipelines, you cannot entirely blame this on pipelines. And so a new pipeline does not guarantee even uh, an increase back of of, of prices. Uh, it is still leaves you to this other other issue but we really should get to this this last story because it is it is important mm -hmm. so yes <clears throat> canada's uh, national observer global news and the toronto star have exposed a fiasco that the industry-funded government-mandated alberta energy regulator has gotten itself into regarding taxpayer liability to the fossil fuel industry's externalized costs Internal documents are showing that Vice President Rob Wadsworth announced at a private presentation back in February that Albertan taxpayers could be on the hook for $260 billion in cleanup costs. The costs are associated with shutting down old wells and cleaning up defunct facilities, pipelines, and tailings ponds, which the latter collectively account for 212 kilometers squared of residual waste pools. The number is much higher than anything that has been announced publicly by government or industry. Until now, it has been claimed <clears throat> that public liabilities were at $58 billion. In any case, the government has only obtained $1.6 billion from industry so far. The National Observer states that Wadsworth, quote, <clears throat> called on all stakeholders to accept tougher regulations and move away from a system that allows the largest companies to take centuries to clean up their toxic well site graveyards. Wadsworth also stated that the $260 billion is probably an understatement and that liabilities from wells are growing because of an <clears throat> increasing number of licenses with questionable financial capacity to meet closure obligations. The Alberta Energy Regulator claims <clears throat> that the number is merely a snapshot of a worst-case scenario and that, quote, industry companies are responsible for the costs. The National Observer reports, quote, in, this, in his February presentation, Wadsworth said that the current rules are so weak that companies can delay setting aside money to cover cleanup costs until they are out of business and can no longer afford to pay anything, end quote. In a statement regarding the new number, the Alberta Energy Regulator said, quote, while, the message, while the message to address liability is important, the numbers were not validated and were based on a hypothetical worst-case scenario. Using these estimates was an error in judgment and one we deeply regret. But Wadsworth's number is based on the Alberta Regulator's internal reports, whereas the number that has been previously publicly available was gleaned from what companies reported to the Regulator. The number of orphaned wells that need to be cleaned up but that have no company around to pay for them has increased from 800 to over 2,000 over the past two years and will continue to rise. A recent legal case may set a precedent for allowing government to go after these deadbeat companies. Economist Robin Allen stated, quote, I have never come across anything like this before, where the known risk estimated by decision makers is so much larger than the publicly available estimates. Alberta Environment Minister Shannon Phillips stated, quote, We have a number of liability questions that remain unanswered because this is a long-term problem, and we did not see leadership from the previous Alberta government for 44 years. There's no, there's no question that there is more work to be done. United, United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney refused to comment with a spokeswoman emailing Global News, National Observer, and the Toronto Star, quote, Thanks for the opportunity, but we're going to pass. 
Shortly after the revelations, the Alberta Energy Regulator issued an apology, an apology, stating, quote, We want to apologize for the concern and confusion that this information has caused. The numbers are staggering. $260 billion in total liability, which is $200 billion more than we have consistently reported. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley for the New Democratic Party has said that these liabilities will be difficult to fix in the midst of, quote, big, the biggest oil price drops in generations. The Alberta Energy Regulator's president, Mr. Jim Ellis, has now decided to resign, but the regulator claims that his resignation has nothing to do with the expose. They claimed, rather, that the decision, quote, has been in the planning stages for the past several months, and that Ellis built a new organization from the ground up and led a team that focused on initiatives that have delivered more than $2 billion in industry savings while protecting public safety and the environment. So, very quickly before we go to you, Lauren, I want to highlight one particular quote. Um, from from Premier Ra- Ra- Rachel Notley. Chosen at random, I'm sure. Chosen at random. Well, it's what was just re- referenced by, by Dave there, which is that it seems to me like a concern that cleaning up from the oil sands may be difficult when the oil sands are not profitable. Because it seems like we'll be doing both those things at the same time. Uh, and so maybe we should consider a stage of government that, I don't know, has money to do the cleanup without requiring on money from the thing causing the cleanup to be necessary. This seems to be a, a, a just, a, a, just a, a thought I'm throwing out there. Uh, but Lauren, let's go to you. Um, no, good thought. I, I had also like pulled out that exact same quote for basically the same reason. <laughs> no, I, I think when I was reading these stories, um, I, I read them in the order they were published. And, and I was sitting at my desk and my jaw just like continued to drop because at first I was so surprised that the Alberta Energy Regulator was like actually speaking truth to like the reality of the situation. And I was like, wow, this is so fantastic. Finally, somebody's like drawing attention to this and they're, they're kind of like an industry insider. So they'll have a little more respect and a little more clout. Great news. Awesome. Like obviously ultimately terrible news because the cost is like gargantuan and, and the situation is dire and we're all going to burn. But like, <laughs> um, but no, it was like, but aside hey, from that. There's, there's like this is like this is some progress, great. And then the next story is like, like everybody's furious, nobody believes him. He had to backtrack. And then third is like, and now his boss has quit. So yeah. I, like it's, it's just it's unbelievable that even if somebody's coming from like basically like within the system, and it's like a wealthy white dude being like, hey guys, here's the reality of the situation, speaking to the economic principles of the matter, and and still people demonize and villainize and and say like nope if you're not completely 100% blindly with us then you're against us and we're going to shut you out and and it's unbelievable because he wasn't saying like we have to turn off the taps tomorrow he was just saying like we have to be smart about this we have to like look at the economic situation and make sure we're allotting money in the appropriate channels and and nope um now he has lost his job yeah, it's and, he made and, the mistake and, of having any assumption at all that they were actually being honest about what their intentions exactly. were. <laughs> but it, yeah. but it's also it also was an internal document, right? Like this wasn't like him going like it, it's it's weird that he was like, oh, I'm sorry for believing a thing internally and not commute. Like he was almost apologizing for having the thought that maybe it was worse. He pulled a Homer Simpson and said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's this <laughs> like it's that's the weirdest part about this for me is that it's like it's it's not like he came out and said, hey, everyone, you should be concerned about this thing. It was just in an internal document 
that was sort of their best estimate from what the information they had. It was a presentation he did in February. Right. In so, which he presented these numbers. But, right, but to internally, not to the public. It wasn't no, like a, public. it wasn't trying to do a, he was sort of saying like, which is important. That's what you would want a regulator to be doing, right? Like the idea that you would not just blindly trust the the, the industry numbers and, and try to figure it out yourself is exactly the work that you'd want this well, kind of organization to do. he still has the job though. It was his, it was the, it was his, it was the, the other guy above him who resigned. Right. But, but I mean, like the, the fact that there's any sort of response to this being negative, mm. right? Like you can, you could, you could come back to this and say like, that does not, you know, that does not match industry numbers, but it's, that's still the very important part of the, uh, of the, of the whole operation. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I, I, I have a completely random jump I want to make at the end of the show. So, Lauren, I want to give you uh, any last thoughts on this before I, I make this completely just different jump to something else entirely. No, nothing nothing too groundbreaking, but just sort of going back to that Notley quote you pulled out where she's talking about like, oh, this looks like it's going to be really expensive, you guys. Let's maybe not worry about it right now. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's How so does that finish that sentence? But anyway. <laughs> it's just, I it's. I would love to see a leader, like literally any leader from any party at some point, I guess, just like have the courage and the foresight to be like, look, we know the tar sands have a limited lifespan. Look at this fluctuation in prices and volatility. It's going to be expensive. I'm going to put money into training laborers to avoid structural unemployment. And then I'm going to develop a plan to like gradually shift fossil fuel subsidies to the renewable energy sector, like on a timeline informed by science, but also informed by the economic realities of, of the province and of the country. And, and, and I'm just not getting that from like literally anyone. And it's becoming increasingly agitating and distressing. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, the complete refusal for any sort of Canadian climate, climate, Canadian politician to provide any true vision for a future without fossil fuels is like at some point anyone should come out. Like again, Elizabeth May perhaps perhaps separate, but even mm-hmm. even Elizabeth May came out and said that the the solution to pipelines was to put a refinery in Alberta, um, and rather than just I don't know not building them. Um, mm-hmm. But but the jump I want to make is to a is just a reference I think that's happening uh, just this Friday or this this Sunday um, in 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 Toronto and um, there's, I'm sure there's other actions around around the around the world on this, which is that there's a that the world's largest mangrove forest the unesco world heritage site site the sunderbands forest is in grave danger uh it's a there's a massive coal plant uh in rompol um which is in bangladesh um and is, is coming in and there's a and there's a, there's a solidarity rally here in, on, in toronto on sunday uh which would be november 11th um and uh and also just look in it's, it's one of those things where it's like this it, it can feel like things are halfway around the world and this so they don't infect us but if anything from this show should should teach you anything it is that we are all connected in all the ways and so showing up for people even like uh and showing solidarity across the world is important um and so and building a coal plant right now in bangladesh which as a quick aside is actually under sea level um, is is one of the more dangerous things that you want to do, uh, especially for for citizens who live in Bangladesh. Uh, so check that out. Know, learn, Google uh, the largest mangrove forest on UNESCO heritage site, um, which is and uh, and look into this because it is also yet yet another example of ways to show to show support uh, across the globe on people fighting uh, fossil fuel projects everywhere. 
and with that, uh, thank you very much, Lauren. Uh, we are we're out of time for the show. Yeah. Uh, Don't forget fundraiser next week. Fundraiser next week. We're out of time. Yes, yeah. but save. Uh, you should be up on. If you remember the joke from last week, you should be up to at least two knees by now. Yes. Uh, save them, and we'll see you next week, folks. Thank you so much. Uh, you can always go to ciut.fm now and donate, uh, especially if you're listening to this on the podcast. Please do that now. Other than that, we'll see you all next week, folks. Thanks so much, and take care. <laughs>